So this is uh, a new series, What Lies Ahead, a Biblical Overview of the End Times. And we're going to be studying this for the next several months. I think it's a good uh, sort of segue out of what we did the last 18 weeks, which was Spirit of the Antichrist. And that uh, series is still out there on the YouTube channel if anyone would like to uh, watch it or recommend it to others. But what I want to do coming out of that now is, is really dive into the Scriptures and try to piece together what the Word of God says about uh, the end times. You know, one-sixth of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. One-sixth. That's a pretty good percentage. And everything in God's Word is there for us to know it. God did not reveal anything in His Word that was superfluous or unnecessary or, you know, insignificant. Everything He gave us in His Word is for us to know. And so... Uh, we want to, to study that one-sixth of the unfulfilled uh, prophecy and be able to understand what lies ahead. That's the reason we've uh, named it uh, uh, this. Now, uh, before we begin, and I'll mention this the first few weeks just because I know we've got uh, really two groups. We've got those of you that are going to be watching and joining us live here at Plum Creek Chapel, and then we've got those that watch it on the Internet through the Not By Works YouTube channel or the Plum Creek Chapel website. And so I wanted to mention for those of you here that this series over the next several months is essentially going to track with my book by the same title, What Lies Ahead? A Biblical Overview of the End Times. Those books are available out on the Not By Works resource table. Plum Creek Chapel has graciously purchased at cost uh, from the publisher uh, some of those. They're available. You can pick one up. Um, uh, we've got a little donation box out there if you'd like to help recover some of that cost. But I highly encourage you to pick one of those up if you don't already have it because it'll allow you to kind of chapter by chapter uh, have information at your fingertips for further study. It's a fantastic book. I meant to bring one of them up here, but it's got 346 pages. 20 or 30 charts and diagrams and graphs. It's got study questions at the end of each chapter. It's, a, it's basically my eschatology class that I've taught both at the baccalaureate and graduate levels for 12 years full-time and then adjunct ever since then for 20 years now. And uh, it's, it's used as a textbook in a number of Bible colleges and seminaries. Uh, the, at the end of the book, one of the things I love about it, it's got a scripture index and if you don't know what that is, what that allows you to do is if you're wondering if I address any particular verse anywhere in the book, you can go to the Scripture Index, look it up by book of the Bible, and see, oh yeah, that verse is addressed on these pages. And then you go to those pages and see what we happen to say about that verse. It's got an excellent bibliography for further study. And again, as I said, study questions at the end of each uh, chapter. So those are available out there. Now, if you're watching this on line what we've decided to do for the duration of this series. And again, I don't know how many it's going to take. I'm pretty sure it'll take longer than 18 uh, because I really want to go cradle to grave everything the Bible has to say about the end times. Uh, but if you're watching this online, we've created a coupon code WLA and you can get this book for 25% off during this uh, study and then we'll take that coupon code away. But we just want to make this book available to as many people as possible. So just go to notbyworks.org, click on the store, and you can uh, search the, and find the book uh, right there. So as we begin, I want to start by sort of whetting your appetite a bit. How much do you really know 
about end times prophecy. As I was sitting there this morning uh, during worship practice and just sort of preparing my heart for this uh, time today, both the Bible study hour and the worship to follow, I was reminded of Matthew chapter 16 when uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, as they so often did, confronted Jesus. And Matthew 16 verse 1 tells us, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And listen to Jesus' answer. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. So there is biblical precedent for us to discern the signs of the times. Now we spent 18 weeks in Spirit of the Antichrist looking at current events, geopolitical events, what's going on in the world, and overlaying that with biblical truth about the great last day's deception and how things are going to play out from Satan's perspective in this uh, Luciferian conspiracy to take over the world. Now we're going to come at that same signs of the times, but from a biblical perspective of how things are going to happen and in what order are they going uh, to happen. And uh, so as we think about end times prophecy, I want to get your mind and your wheels turning about some of these topics. So uh, as we consider certain topics, you, you, maybe you, the end times, this topic comes to mind, rapture. That seems to be what everybody talks about the rapture. And in among those who study and teach and write about eschatology, which is the technical term for the end times, uh, the rapture uh, is really one of those topics that people are all over the map about. Uh, and we want to say, what does the Bible say about the rapture? And if you are listening to this or you've been coming here and you are to our studies and you're kind of on the fence about what is the rapture, do I, do I really believe in the rapture? Because again, a lot of people who understand the Luciferian conspiracy at the same time reject the biblical teaching of the rapture, which is a shame. Uh, but we try to run everything we uh, teach and, and study through the lens of Scripture. So we're going to talk about that and how that relates, for example, to the second coming. The rapture and the second coming are not the same event. That's as plain as day when you look at the passages in Scripture, and yet many people confuse them. We're going to explain why. What are things like Gog and Magog? Who is the Antichrist? What is the Antichrist? What does the Bible say about the Antichrist? We've talked a lot about him over the last 18 weeks, but we're going to talk even more about him when we get there in this study. Who's the false prophet? Uh, who are the two witnesses during the end times that uh, pop up on the scene about three and a half years before Christ comes back to inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom? Uh, what are the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments that the Revelation, book of Revelation talks about? And in particular, when we deal with the seal trumpets, uh, who, what, what, what is the four horsemen of the apocalypse? What does that mean? You hear that all the time. What, what, what is that? Uh, what's the battle of Armageddon? What's the abomination of desolation? Uh, what is the millennium and the great white throne judgment? And where do they fit into God's plan? These are just a taste of the types of things that we're going to talk about. What about the Bema judgment? We touched on that briefly at our midweek Bible study this week. We're going to talk more about that. We have a whole chapter on that in What Lies Ahead, the book. We're going to talk about the Lake of Fire uh, or the 144,000. Who are they? How do they fit into God's plan of the ages? 
um, or the marriage of the Lamb. When does that happen and, and what does it relate to? Or the beast. We talked a lot about the beast and the false prophet. Who is this beast from the sea as the book of Revelation talks about? And one of the things we're going to touch on early on, probably in the second or third session, is the 70th week of Daniel. What in the world is that? That's one of those biblical eschatology terms that really you don't even hear the terminology outside of the subject of biblical eschatology and the end times. What is Daniel's 70th week? I call it the 490-year prophecy. It is the key to understanding God's timetable. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say you cannot understand the timetable, and by that I mean the order of events in, in the appendix uh, to what lies ahead. We have several appendices, and one of them is a sequential order of end times events, just for quick reference. So you flip back there and you can kind of see what's the next event that's going to happen on God's timetable. And then one comes next, what comes next, what comes next. We can't set dates. We can't tell when things are going to happen based on the calendar. But we can tell when things are going to happen relative to one another according to the testimony of Scripture. And so, uh, you know, what, 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 is, uh, what are these things? And how does Daniel's 490-week prophecy inform us about the order of end times events? And what about the new heavens and the new earth? Or what about Babylon? How does Babylon play in this? It gets a lot of attention in the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament. How does it fit in? And also the temple. You know, a lot of people uh, know just enough about the temple and how it plays into future things uh, to be dangerous. But we're going to go to Scripture and say, what does the Bible teach us about the temple? Did you know there are nine consecutive chapters in the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel that describe the dimensions of the temple? And, and most people, uh, many people, I would say most in the grand scheme of Christianity, uh, in terms of those who believe the Bible and teach the Bible, I would say the majority of them dismiss the temple and think it's all figurative and spiritual. So in, that, in so doing, they've just taken nine chapters, and it's mentioned many other places. We're going to look at some of them this morning. But those nine chapters alone are just ripped out of the Bible and tossed aside as if they're completely insignificant. Yet why did God, in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveal to the prophet Ezekiel in such magnificent detail the dimensions and the nature and the characteristics of this future temple, if it's not important? So these are just a, just a taste. I just, stream of consciousness, just started writing these things down as they come to my mind, and we barely scratched the surface. One-sixth of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. Now, this particular uh, series, uh, obviously I'm going to, to touch on a lot of current events as we discern the signs of the times, like Jesus said in Matthew 16. But by and large, we're going to be saying, what does the Bible teach about this? And much of the application will be left for us to, to, to state the obvious and to observe the obvious. Uh, but I want you to have a grid uh, through which you can funnel all that's happening. Because I'm here to tell you, we are living in some very troubling times. And that's not just preacher speak or the typical hyperbole that you know, preachers have been saying for hundreds of years. Uh, you'd have to be living under a rock not to look around and recognize that Christianity is under attack more than ever before. I mean, look no further than for the first time since the Emperor Constantine in, what, 400 A.D., roughly, uh, we were not able to worship our Lord on Resurrection Sunday. That's significant. Okay? 
And, and that's just one piece of the puzzle. You put a cumulative case together, and truth is under attack. And Christians are aiding and abetting the great last day's deception. And I want you to know, it is never the loving thing to do to aid and abet a lie, to embrace a lie, to perpetuate a lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when the church, wittingly or unwittingly, you know, remember 2 Timothy 3.13 says, evil men and imposters are growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So I understand many believers are deceived today. They've bought a lie. And others are perpetuating that lie. Either way, that is not loving. God is love. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. You know, 1 John 4.8, John 10.30. Uh, and so you cannot be loving and embracing a lie at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. So I want to start this morning by asking this question. Why should we study end times prophecy? Uh, hopefully already, just by virtue of the logic behind the facts that there are one-sixth of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy and all of these topics that I've just touched on that maybe you've no, you, we, we know nothing about and we should know, that in its, of itself should sort of say, yeah, we kind of need to study this. But let me make the case over and above that with some key points. But to illustrate the answer to this question, I'm going to start with a quick story that I tell at the beginning of what lies ahead. So if you've read, started reading this book, this may sound familiar, uh, but I think you'll get the point. Why should we study end times prophecy? Jim was in serious trouble. He loved to take his father's old fishing boat out on those warm summer days. It helped him to relax, thinking of all the good memories he had shared with his father. Now it was only Jim and his faithful black lab, Shadow. Growing up on the shores of Lake Superior meant that Jim knew all the risks of the big lake. This was something his dad had made sure of. Jim was certain that high pressure had settled in and no clouds were in the sky and the waves were expected to be less than two feet. It looked like a perfect day to head out far past the Apostles' Islands. This was when the trouble began. Jim and Shadow had barely arrived when Jim first noticed that the waves seemed to be much rougher than originally forecasted. Shadow probably noticed it first. The clear skies were giving way to clouds. Turning on the weather radio was the first order of business. The National Weather Service, he found, was warning of a quick-moving cold front that was coming in from the northwest. This ferocious storm was about to turn the calm water into a violent nightmare. Jim began to think he had another problem. Not only were the waves getting higher, but the boat was starting to sit lower in the water. This could only mean one thing. They were taking on water. Jim headed below deck to see how bad it was. The water filling the cabin confirmed his worst fears. There was simply no way uh, to see where the water was coming from. Jim started to think through his options. Eventually, the water would kill the engines and the power. Could he make it all the way back to shore? It seemed impossible. Could he make it to one of the islands? Well, perhaps a freighter in the shipping lanes would spot him in time. Jim knew there was only one thing to do. He put in a desperate call for help, hoping that he could be rescued. Having grown up in the region, Jim knew there was a Coast Guard rescue station in Duluth, Minnesota. He also knew there was a smaller post on the southern shore in Wisconsin. 
He put in the call on the marine radio. The jagged voice on the other end instilled comfort. He relayed his situation and location, and then the radio went dead. Turned out that Jim had even less time than he had first thought. Enough water had come on board to kill the power and both engines. Those small two-foot waves had grown significantly higher. At some point, Jim and Shadow were going to be in the water. The water temperature at this time of year would not be much more than 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Jim knew that once they went into the water, they had less than an hour before hypothermia would set in. With the waves crashing upon them, hope of lasting that long was unthinkable. Had the Coast Guard heard him? Would the Coast Guard even be able to find him in the storm? As these questions raced through his mind, he recognized that it was time to abandon ship. His feet were already wet and his boat would soon be underwater. Strapping his life jacket on, Jim and Shadow plunged in. Okay, let's turn to Revelation chapter 22 as we begin our Bible study. Oh, are you wondering what happened to Jim and Shadow? Really? You know, we don't like it when we don't know the end of the story, do we? I mean, we would never accept it in a good novel or in a movie. So, so why do Christians accept not knowing God's end of the plan? Why do so many Christians think, well, I don't want to read Revelation. It's too complicated, even though Revelation is the easiest book in the Bible to outline. See, our future with Christ is far more important than any story or novel or movie. And Jesus talked about this in Revelation 22.7. By the way, if you want to know the rest of the story, you're going to have to buy the book. All right? <laughs> Jesus said at the, in the last chapter of the Bible, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, if it's so important in the mind of God to mention it last, to address it in the waning words and pages of Scripture, of His complete revelation. It ought to be important enough for us to study it as well. The end of the story reminds us that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. Reminds us that he who sat on the throne says, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are faithful and true. When's the last time you stopped to take a look at the final two verses in the entire Bible? Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. Ends with Jesus saying, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. And that is a cause for an amen. So be it. The Bible ends with a promise from none other than our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, reminding us that He is coming again. And He's coming suddenly. Quickly there doesn't mean soon. It means rapidly, suddenly. And then it ends with, Even so, come Lord Jesus. You know, I've, I've heard that phrase a lot more lately than I have in many years, because believers who understand God's plan of the ages 
and understand the end of the story, who didn't set the book aside two-thirds of the way through it, or turn off the movie 20 minutes from the end. Believers who take the time to read the whole counsel of God understand that these are troubling times. And more than ever before, we long to see our Savior face to face. So we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And that's the way the Bible ends. Let me give you some reasons that every Christian should study end times prophecy. And I believe it's more important today than in any other time. I believe I've made the case in the Spirit of the Antichrist series that the Antichrist and, and the, the, I mean, the Satan and his co-conspirators of demons and human agents are ratcheting things up. They have been really for the last, since 1947 at least, and especially in the last few years, we see so many things happening at once. It's an onslaught. It's almost hard to even keep up with. At every angle, on every front, we're under attack. And, and so I believe... We need to be prepared. I've talked a lot about that, Proverbs 22.3. That's a biblical principle. We don't know if the Lord in His sovereignty is going to allow the church uh, to continue on through days of persecution. We do know that many within the church have suffered persecution unspeakably for the last 2,000 years. So we cannot be presumptuous and assume that somehow the Lord's going to rescue us today in America before it gets too bad. Uh, we may face some pretty rough times. We pray even so come Lord Jesus, but we prepare uh, because we see the train coming down the track uh, for the worst. And we need to, to steel ourselves to hold our heads high and, and, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ even at a time when we're not allowed to. Um, so, so here's why every believer, besides just the relevance, uh, especially so in our present day, should study the end times. First of all, as I mentioned right off the bat, it tells the end of the story. Why would you not want to know the end of the story? The verse we looked at, the last two verses of the Bible, surely I am coming quickly. That's how the Bible ends. So it tells the end of the story. But secondly, it's profitable like all of Scripture. See, they're not degrees of inspiration or degrees of applicability or degrees of truth. The Bible is a cohesive unit. God revealed or unveiled. By the way, that's what the word revelation means. It's the Greek word apocalypsis. It means unveiling. And if you think of, uh, say, a famous sculptor who spends years maybe working on a, a, a sculpture and then the appointed day comes, it's completed, all of his devoted fans and followers and dignitaries are gathered for the occasion for the unveiling of the sculpture. And it sits off in a corner with a big tarp over it, and at the appointed time they pull the tarp off and then everyone can behold the sculpture. That's what apocalypsis is, that's what unveiling is. And God has unveiled himself, the Bible is the self-unveiling, the self-revelation of the Creator to mankind. It's God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. The Bible is, has everything we need to know about God, right? And so, for a period of 1,500 years, through the pen of 40 different human authors, in three different languages, uh, God unveiled his plan. And all of it is profitable. 2 Timothy 3 tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Number three, not only is, does it tell us the end of the story and is it profitable like all of Scripture, but it gives us hope for the future. 
Once you know how the story ends, it fills you with hope. For example, in Romans chapter 8, we read, For if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And we talked about hope, uh, I think it was last Sunday, actually, in Hebrews. I think that's right. And uh, how our hope is in the Lord. If, If all we had to find hope in was what we can see and feel and touch... There, there wouldn't be much hope today, would there? But our hope is in what we cannot see. That's what Paul is saying here. If, if, you, if, you, if, if we already have received our hope, then there's really nothing more to hope for. But we hope for what we do not see, and it fills us with perseverance. Uh, also, every passage that talks about the rapture, by the way, reminds us uh, of a comforting encouragement. Uh, for example, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. With what words? That the Lord is going to come back and rescue us from this present evil age, and we are at some point in the twinkling of an eye going to be caught up to meet the Lord, as well as all of our loved ones who've died and gone before us, who know the Lord, in the air. That is a great comfort. Uh, You wouldn't know that if if you didn't study the end times. You wouldn't know about the grand reunion in the sky. I mean, how many of you can think of someone very near and dear to your heart, a mom, a dad, a child, perhaps, a brother, a sister, a friend, who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and has died. We know, based on the authority of Scripture, that they are in the presence of the Lord, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We also know that Jesus Christ will bring with him, when he comes back, those who have already died in the Lord. That fills us with hope. I can think of several people right now that I cannot wait to see and give one more hug. Uh, in that grand reunion in the sky. You know, one of my dear friends, uh, his name's Garth, died same age as me, six kids like me, died in his sleep just like that. We don't know why. One of the first questions I'm going to ask the Lord, why? Garth took over the church I left in Illinois years ago. He was a disciple of mine, dear friend. We had so much in common. He understood the Luciferian conspiracy. He's one of the few people I could pick up the phone and talk about current events and all that's going on, and he got it. Gone. Just like that. I'll never forget it. You know, and went back and preached his funeral. And, you know, his, his kids are just, and his wife, Lacey, still walking with the Lord, trusting the Lord. And we have such a great relationship with them. Talk to them, you know, regularly, several times a week, or text and email. But it brings comfort to know that while I miss him, it's a temporary separation. You would not know that if you didn't read the one-sixth of the Bible that talks about unfulfilled prophecy. Or, you know, what about Titus? The whole concept of the rapture is called a blessed hope. So studying the end times fills us with hope for the future. But it also provides us with motivation in the present. Remember, Paul said, If in this life only I have hope, I am of all men most pitiable. Some translations say miserable. Right? If, if I, especially today, if I had to get out of bed every day thinking that, you know, at any moment we're not even going to be able to worship as a church again, at any moment I'm going to be accosted because I held, celebrated Thanksgiving in my home, at any moment I'm not going to be able to, you know, see my, if, I mean, I pray to God that none of my family members get sick or injured. Because if they go to the hospital, I'm not going to be able to be with them. 
How many people for the last nine months haven't been at the bedside of their life? I have another dear friend in Tennessee whose wife died of cancer during this uh, control of Irish scamdemic. And he wasn't able to be at her bedside. That's tragic. And if that's all we had to hope for, I wouldn't get out of bed. But studying the end times gives me motivation. Uh, John tells us we should abide in him. That's Christ. Abide means to remain in close fellowship with him. We talked about this Wednesday night. So that when he appears, we'll have confidence. In other words, we should live today, every day, with a conscious awareness of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming. The trumpet could sound, the eastern sky could split, and we meet our Lord in the air. Amen. I mean, I believe that. And, uh, or, you know, again, in Revelation 22, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Earlier than the last two verses of the Bible, he says, and my reward is with me. By the way, the reward there is not heaven, because heaven is not something we get based on our work. The reward is the rewards that he's going to give us at the Bema Judgment, one of those end times prophecies we're going to talk about. Right? Rewards are earned through faithfulness, and we're going to be receiving rewards at the Bema Judgment. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about it, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about it, Romans 14 talks about it, many, Colossians talks about it. So, but Jesus says, I am coming quickly. So that motivates us. It also puts life in perspective. When you face the inequities of life and the difficulties of life and the struggles of life, you're able to do what Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above and recognize that our life is not here on earth where we're just sojourners and pilgrims passing through. We are citizens of heaven. And notice he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Verses like this for the last 2,000 years are what God's people throughout the ages have held on to in the deepest, darkest times in their life. Being tortured in, 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 in dungeons, being imprisoned, being hauled off to extermination camps. This is what believers hold on to. And we have been, to say the least, very spoiled in American Western Evangelical Christianity. And unfortunately, the church, by and large, is asleep at the wheel now. And not recognizing if there ever was a time to stand for truth, it's today. It's today. And the people that are compromising today, I dare say, are going to be the ones that are getting on the train possibly very soon from now. So it puts life in perspective. A couple more. It authenticates Scripture by acknowledging the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. You know, we're about to celebrate Christmas, and obviously we know there are a host of Old Testament passages that foretold of the coming of the Christ child. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 61, uh, Micah 5, uh, many passages. Uh, we're going to talk about one here in a second that goes all the way back to Genesis, right? And it's because we see the words of Scripture being fulfilled that we can then have confidence that our God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a God who keeps His promises, like we talked about uh, a few weeks ago in Hebrews 6. Uh, so it helps us 
validate the truth of God's word when we acknowledge as those prophecies, the five-sixths that have already been fulfilled. And it also, of course, worships, uh, inspires worship in a sovereign creator who is in complete control of human history. See, God is not haphazard, whimsical. God has a plan, and He is working out His eternal plan of the ages step by step, precisely as He intended. So if we look at the big picture, and we'll uh, come back to this a lot, God uh, has a, a plan. It goes from creation to corruption to redemption to recreation. That's God's plan. Um, I remember one time on one of our trips, uh, as you know, our family travels a lot with our ministry with Not By Works, and uh, Wendy and I were on a trip one time, and we had, I had ripped some uh, audio lectures from a bunch of CDs that I had from a conference that I didn't go to, but I bought the CDs from it so I could listen to it. And so I'd ripped all these tracks and somehow, and, and then made them into an MP3 so I could play them on my phone and plug it into the car audio jack. Well, somehow in ripping them, they all came off the CD, which was fine, but they were all in out, out of order, right? They were just completely jumbled up. And, and the label was not helpful at all. And so we would listen to one and it would have, it would lack context. It would be a little unclear. And then two tracks later, we'd listen to another one and we'd go, oh yeah, that one went up there. And we'd try to piece together uh, uh, how it went. It'd be like reading a book completely out of order. Well, we don't have to do that with God's plan of the ages. God hasn't made it confusing. He's made it clear. In fact, there's a doctrine going all the way back to the Reformation days called the perspicuity of Scripture which just means the understandability of Scripture, that we can understand God's Word. It's not mystical. Now, the Roman Catholic Church taught us for the, some 1,200, 1,800 years, to the Dark Ages, that you couldn't understand it. Don't read it. If you, in fact, if you're caught with a Bible, we're going to burn you at the stake. Just let the priests tell you what it means. And, and it wasn't until the Reformation that we finally were able, after the printing press, able to read the Bible for ourselves. And that's when people, for the first time in centuries, began recognizing, you know what, God has a plan. There is more to what's coming. And so that's why you see a proliferation, particularly from, say, the, the early 19th century on, uh, of teaching about the end times. It's not because somebody made it up. A lot of people who reject the teaching on the end times just say, see, we never taught this for you know 1,500 years, and all of a sudden it's, it started being taught. It's a new thing. No, it's not new. They didn't teach anything for 1,500 years because they couldn't read their Bibles. But once you read the Bible, it's pretty plain. It's pretty clear what God's plan of the ages is. And by the way, as a side note, in my uh, Ph.D. studies, I actually had to go back and study each century through the ages of church history and show and demonstrate that we do have documented evidence of a consistent belief in a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church, once to establish his long-awaited kingdom, in every century. So it's not like it was entirely absent, it just wasn't pervasive because the populace couldn't uh, read the Bible. So God has a plan, and, and you've seen this chart, I've used it quite often in our Spirit of the Antichrist series, uh, but it, it's pretty clear. It starts with creation some 6,000 years ago. Uh, after the fall, uh, we have uh, a time of conscience. And then we had, under the age of Noah, a time of human government, when God institutes human government in Genesis chapter 9. And then, of course, the Abrahamic promise, which is what we're going to focus on our first couple of sessions in this new series, 
um, because that's where it all begins. See, when you study the end times, it's a little counterintuitive. You don't start with Revelation to understand the end times. You start with the beginning. In the same way that if you want to understand a movie, you don't just fast forward to the end and watch the last 20 minutes. You'd have no idea. You watch the whole movie. So to understand God's plan of the ages and the end times prophecies, we've got to trace it from Genesis forward. So we're going to go back to the promise given to Abraham. Then you have the period of the law. Then you have the church age, which is highlighted in yellow because that's the age in which we live. So we are living in the fourth quarter already, according to God's plan. The only age left to come is the kingdom age when he's going to establish and inaugurate this long-awaited kingdom. The tribulation or the outpouring of God's wrath is a transition between the church age and the kingdom age, and it's the completion of that 490-year prophecy I alluded to earlier, Daniel's 70th week. 483 years of that have already been fulfilled in history. Seven years of them will be fulfilled uh, after the rapture, and we're going to make that case. So even if you're listening to this or sitting here uh, this morning and uh, you are inclined to believe differently, I respect that, and we're not. I'm not here to indoctrinate. I'm here to hopefully give you the tools in Scripture and make the case, and you can make up your own mind. But let me make the case. Stick with me through this series, and let's see what God's Word says, and wrestle with the passages of Scripture that I think are quite clear about how Daniel's plan fits into God's overall plan. Another way to chart this out is to look at God's plan of the ages in this way. So if you if you think of everything. Uh, here is part of God's plan for the universe, the created universe. Remember, God is eternal. God is outside of time, space, and matter. In fact, uh, twice the Apostle Paul refers to before time began, talking about eternity. So time was created by God in the beginning. The beginning of what? Time. God created the heavens and the earth, space and matter. So time, space, and matter came into existence at once by the spoken word of the Creator. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit exist outside of time in eternity. Now that is impossible, according to Romans 11 and a few other passages, for us to understand. We cannot reconcile eternality with linear time, try though we might. And many theologians and theological systems have tried to reconcile the two, but I'm quite comfortable with the tension, because Paul tells us in Romans 11, just listen to this, uh, that we should uh, embrace and recognize the tension and not feel like we have to figure everything out. Uh, Paul says in verse 33 of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We can't figure out something that happens in eternity. We, all we know is that God is sovereign and we have free will. That those seem contradictory to us here on earth, I get it. It, it does seem contradictory. Don't, I don't attempt to explain it or pretend to be smart enough to figure it out. I'm okay recognizing that God teaches both. See, there are a lot of truths that we believe because the Bible says so. And when we build our belief system, our worldview on the Bible, instead of some theological system that may, for example, have five points, just hypothetically, uh, then we're going to be doomed from the start, right? We build our system on what does the Bible say? And if there are contradictions, for example, like a virgin having a child, that is impossible. I mean, I don't want to get too biological here, but it's impossible. Yet the Bible teaches it. It's 
impossible for the sun, if you know anything about the planetary system, to stand still for a day. It's impossible. It's impossible for an entire sea to roll back and part so that the Israelites can walk through on dry land and then just as the Pharaoh's chariots are coming through, it all kind of closes back. So now, liberals who don't believe God's word teach that all of those are natural occurrences. It wasn't the sun standing still. It was just a long day. It wasn't the Red Sea parting. It was low tide. You know, they make up all, all these types of... Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a great fish because everybody knows that can't happen. So it must not have happened, right? So when you start with your own logic and try to bring it to the Bible, you end up with... You know, old earth, millions of years, millions of years of death and destruction before sin ever entered the world, even though the Bible tells us that death is the direct result of sin. You can't have death before sin. You end up with everybody evolving from a wet rock. You end up with all kinds of contra you know, contradictory belief systems. But we believe that, that God's you know, word is the only standard for our beliefs, and we start there. And so that necessarily means we're going to believe some contradictions from a human perspective. Uh, so God has a plan. It started with creation. As I said, this is just another way to chart out that plan of the ages. Then he created the nations. Then he created Israel through Abraham. Then he created the church. And then, of course, because of sin entering the world, all of this was corrupt. Right? We all are born dead in our trespasses and sin. And so on the redemption side, God had to redeem first the church through the rapture. Then Israel, through the restoration of Israel back to their promised land. Then he had to judge the nations for their rejection of the free gift of eternal life. And then he has to redeem all of creation when he destroys the heavens and the earth and creates a new heavens and the earth. And along the way of this plan, God is doing a number of things. He has a plan for the salvation of individuals. He has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for the church. He has a plan for angels. He has a plan for demons. And now we could list things in here all day. The only one that I found that God does not have a plan for is cats. They were an accident. I don't know where they fit into God's plan, but I feel like I'm pretty sure that's, that's right. Uh, but all of this ultimately brings us to the kingdom, right? That's God's plan. So uh, next time, because we're out of time for this morning, I want to, uh, hopefully I've laid the foundation, whet your appetite, made the case that this is an important subject to study and know and read, and it's exciting, and, it, and there's so much, it's so rich with information and material that, I mean, we're going to be studying this for a while, but I'm going to start next time with God's kingdom promise and go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and show you how God's kingdom promise after the fall was first mentioned there. It's what theologians call the protoevangelium, proto first euangelion gospel, the first reference to the gospel. Not in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's all the way back in, 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 in Genesis. So we've got about three minutes here. If there are any questions or comments, I'll be glad to kind of dialogue with you a little bit before we close out this first uh, session. Anybody? You'll probably get into it, but you brought up First Thessalonians 4. And um, in there it talks about, uh, it seems to go against the two-stage return. It says, with a shout, mm -hmm. he will come back. It does not go against what the popular belief of a rapture of a thief in the night. 
So I'm going to repeat the question just to make sure that it's captured on the, the video. I think our mic does a pretty good job of picking up uh, audience questions. But the question is about 1 Thessalonians 4. And yes, we are going to deal with that in much greater detail. But it says, The Lord himself will descend with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. And, and the question is, doesn't that seem to go against Jesus' teaching that the rapture will come like a thief in the night? Not at all. Jesus' statement, first of all, about a thief in the night is not have anything to do with the rapture. Jesus never mentions the rapture a single time except for once the night before he was betrayed in the upper room to the disciples in John 14. When he, that's the, in fact, that's the earliest reference to the rapture anywhere on planet earth. Because the rapture is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It, Paul later would describe it and call it a mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery is something previously unrevealed. So Jesus revealed it first to the disciples, and then Paul later expounded upon it. The thief in the night passage is talking about the second coming. And it's, Jesus is speaking to Israel. That's clear from the context. And, and there's a series of watchfulness uh, or readiness uh, parables, you know, the, the householder, the thief in the night, Noah, uh, the ten virgins. And in, the, in that context, he's, he's saying, look, uh, it's going to come, if you're not ready, he's going to come at a time when you're not expecting it, just like a thief in the night. It has nothing to do with quietness or sound. It has to do with readiness. And clearly, if you knew what hour a thief would come, you know, you and your three friends, three, five, and seven, would be waiting for him, right? And he would not steal all of your belongings, right? But if you're not ready, he's going to come like a thief in the night. So that's, that's the short answer. Anybody else? Well, good. Well, we are going to get into a lot more detail. Um, again, pick up the book if you're watching this uh, on the web. Again, just go to the Not By Works website. And you can uh, click on the store there. Be sure you use WLA when you check out because it'll save you five or six bucks on the, on the book. So uh, let's take a break and we will reconvene here in about uh, 15 minutes for worship.